Hi there, and welcome to another Dishcast. I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, you know I'm a bit of a bore about the LGBTQIA2S plus V community. Uh, and I thought I would get two leading members of the LGBTQIA2S plus community to join me, who are two of the most interesting, well, one of the most lively and interesting gay men writing in public and one of the most fabulous and funny and brilliant lesbians out there. And there are a few of those every day. <laughs> so this is, I'm, 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 I, he, with me today is Jamie Kerchick, whom I've known forever. Uh, uh, and uh, a sort of neocon gay person. I'm now being terribly rude about you, but he's, he's, a, he's a wonderful, actually wonderful historian and great writer. Um, and the other is, is Katie Herzog, um, a wonderful lesbian I've known. I knew virtually for a while. I met, I think, two years ago now, something like two years ago, year and a half. Everything, uh, COVID becomes, everything becomes a really weird timing. Um, Katie Herzog, who now hosts the blocked and reported podcast with her battered wife, Jessie Siegel. <laughs> Are we even allowed to use that term anymore? But you know what I mean. He's, it, it, it's, it's a punch and duty show, really, and she does all the punching, and it's, it's fabulous. Uh, and it's one of the most successful podcasts out there, right? So please listen to her podcast. It's, if, if nothing else, you will, you will laugh. It's funny. Um, Jamie, tell me what your next book is. Uh, it is a what's well, called Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. It'll be coming out in February. And it is a narrative history, a sweeping narrative history of what I call the specter of homosexuality over American national politics from about the New Deal, World War II, uh, until the 1990s when, the, uh, when Bill Clinton lifted the ban on gay people receiving security clearances. So it's basically about the um, interplay between secrecy and homosexuality and secrecy and power in Washington. Um, for basically the duration of the Cold War era. Great. If, and, and, and one of the things I do recommend for that is the PBS mm -hmm. show, uh, The Lavender Scare, which is, I'm told, playing this week on PBS stations, which might be worth a look at. It particularly frames Frank Kameny, a trans woman of color, as the <laughs> critical person in the movement. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let that one fly by. And... Uh, I'd like you both to tell us a little bit where you're from. We do this every time. Tell us where you grew up and what most influenced you. And, uh, uh, and obviously in both of your cases in this particular instance, uh, when you figured out you were gay or lesbian and, uh, and, and how the world was then reflected back on you. Jamie, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I grew up in uh, suburban Boston and I would say I probably realized I was gay maybe around 12 or 13, uh, so around my bar mitzvah age. And at the time, it was something terrifying. And this was in the 90s. This, was, this would have been in the late, mid to late 90s. So it was the gay 90s, right? I mean, it was in the long sweep of history. It was actually relatively a pretty open period. I mean, I, I distinctly recall actually being in my eighth grade library and looking at the cover of, I think it was Time magazine with Ellen on the cover, that, yep, yep, I'm gay. Do If you both remember, remember that. Um, and I remember, I do. And I remember that being a huge cultural moment. And 
and, and being important for me in the sense that, wow, this is sort of the first kind of like positive acknowledgement in the pop culture of gayness, I guess. I went to an all boys high school, which was a great experience and a, and a, and a great, great educational experience. In well, actually, there, no, there, there, there wasn't any, uh, at least for me. And, you know, and I, and I say this not as a matter of regret, but I think being in an all male environment, it probably delayed my coming out. I didn't come out until I was uh, 18, until my first year, until I was a freshman at Yale. And I think just being in an all male environment, those are, those were, I would say, naturally more difficult places to be, to be a gay man. I think my school that I went to has changed dramatically um, in the, oh my God, almost, what is it now? Almost 20 years since I graduated. Um, and I, and I, and I, and what, 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 what I hear now is that, you know, students are coming out more, more, uh, earlier and there's more of them and that's a great development. And I think that that actually speaks to the main point that I would make today, which is that, uh, there's probably no group of people who have witnessed a better, more dramatic transformation in their role, in their place in American society than gay and lesbian Americans. If you look at what it was like to be gay or lesbian in the 1950s and what it is like to be gay or lesbian now, there's no other group that can say that they have witnessed a more dramatic, positive change. You know, I'll say another influence growing up, frankly, and I'm not saying this to 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 uh, butter you up, Andrew, but was, was reading you. I mean, I was reading you probably when I was 16 or 17, 18, reading your blog. Um, and I was also someone, you know, particularly around that time, 9-11 happened in my kind of politics like yours, I think kind of clarified around that moment. And so I, I was sort of moving more towards the center, right. And so that was also very complicated being gay and, but not being a part of sort of the, you know, mainstream left-wing world and, you know, having someone so visible who was right of center and was very openly gay was important to me. And there were other, you know, other writers, other gay writers as well. I think people like uh, Jonathan Rausch or, or Bruce Bauer, who, who filled that role who filled that role for me as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I look back on what it was like to be gay when I was growing up and it's such a, I mean, it is such a dramatic change and I'm not that old, I'm 37. I mean, you talk to people older um, and, and it's just an incredibly positive development. And I, you know, I attribute that to kind of uniquely American values and features. The fact that we have a free and open society, uh, free speech, um, free and open debate. Um, and that's why I think I'm so committed to to those ideals. And I think it's a theme of my writing if people if people read what I've written. And I think it comes from being gay, frankly. I think um, growing up, living a lie for a large part of your life, which is something that all gay people do, and they have to do it for less and less years now because they're coming out younger. But I think if you do that for a part of your life, I think you become more sensitive to th questions of integrity and and personal integrity and truth and having your say and listening to what other people have to say. Um, I think if you're basically forced to be silent about who you are, at least in my case, it has made me more inclined towards individual freedom um, and the importance of values like you know free speech and pluralism. Pluralism is very important to me politically. I've always sort of existed in environments where I've not, you know, I've been I've been maybe the odd man out in a way. I mean, I was at Yale University. I was sort of a conservative columnist for the paper. I worked at the New Republic magazine. I, I'm, I'm a fellow at the Brookings Institution right now, which is, you know, a center-left institution. So I've always kind of existed in these places. And I, I, think, it, I think part of it comes from, from being gay. Katie, tell us about your childhood. Well, I, like Jamie, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. And, and like Jamie, I can really credit you for uh, helping me discover I was a lesbian because I saw you and I thought, I don't want any piece of that. <laughs> um, 
So I'm, I'm from. Glad. I'm glad you had that essential role. Yeah. Actually, we didn't. I got you know. I got married. Um, I got married right at the beginning of COVID in March of last year. And this and the reason my wife and I decided to get married was in part because getting married during during COVID was the only way we could guarantee that nobody would demand to be at our wedding. And uh, and we found a guy. So my my cousin. Yeah. So my cousin um, was gonna be the officiant. And uh, she lives. She lives fairly nearby. And, and we were looking, or not the officiant, the the witness. And it turns out that her neighbor was is an officiant. You know, he has the 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 internet uh, internet priesthood or whatever. And and we didn't want to do any sort of readings, but this guy who was marrying us, it was for some reason important for him to him that we do some sort of reading. And so I, the reading that I picked out was your first column after COVID about the plague. And I picked out these, like the, t- the first two paragraphs that were about, about, about that you wrote about watching the age. People can't see this right now, but your eyes are giant. This is the <laughs> darkest, darkest possible thing that someone could choose to write. Like, this is like funeral shit not wedding shit, but I chose this, this passage that you wrote about, about surviving a plague and sent that to him. And I said, this is what, if we have to have a reading, this is what I would like to have. And uh, so we didn't have to do a reading. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, thank you. I guess. Um, <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. Now, so where did you grow up? So I grew up in Western North Carolina um, in a, a small town, not even a town, really. It's a, a, a census-designated place called Cullowee. There's no, there's no downtown. There's very few, few stoplights. There's a college there. My parents are college professors, or they're retired now. They're, they're very liberal uh, because they're academics. My, my dad taught uh, psychology, specifically evolutionary psychology. So that sort of tells you where he was coming from. Um, and, and my parents were very, very liberal. They're atheists. They were both raised religious, but by the time they were adults, they had lost the, the Catholic church and the Baptist church. Uh, and, uh, and so they raised my siblings and I to be atheists in what was a really pretty conservative area. So this is the Appalachian region of Western, of North Carolina. Um, so not, not deep South, it's sort of a different culture. It's, 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 uh, it's sort of Western in a way, Appalachian. Um, some people will, will get that what that means. And, uh, and there were very few few gay people in my town like I went to a high school with a thousand people and there were two I believe two out gay boys and I graduated in 2001 so even in the late 90s early 2000s homosexuality just was not represented and uh Jamie mentioned Ellen I remember when Ellen came out and what I remember was listening to conservative radio uh and hearing people call her Ellen Degenerate so where I live this was not she wasn't she wasn't lauded as a hero you know she she did lose her show after this but it, there was much we saw much more of the backlash and this is probably part of the reason that it took me a long time to to realize that i was gay because representation actually it does matter and and the only representation that i had of lesbians was like watching a what's that Rosie O'Donnell movie about baseball a league of their own right oh, yeah yeah and so and i wasn't I wasn't attracted to butches and everything I knew about about lesbianism was was sort of modeled on the stereotype of the butch. And so it didn't really occur to me until I was in college that there would be women that I would be attracted to because I wasn't attracted to the people that I thought of as lesbians. And so I came out when I was a, a sophomore in college after I, I, I met my first girlfriend and my I went to college in Asheville, North Carolina. So this is also in Western North Carolina, but it's a very progressive town. Um, and, uh, and so I, I came out, you know, to my friends and that was no big deal. It was, you know, half of my, of my freshman class was also, was also 
coming out as gay. Most of them ended up marrying men, but uh, but I stuck with it. And I came out to my, you know, my friends. Yes, yes. I <laughs> I was not a lug. I am a, I'm a I'm a lifetime lifetime homosexual. And uh, so I came out to my 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 friends first, and no big deal. And then uh, I came out to my siblings. And then I, I didn't tell my parents because I wasn't worried about their reaction. My parents are, are very progressive. My dad was the faculty advisor for the LGBTQ club on his on his campus. He taught the human sexuality course. I wasn't. They're not religious. They're not conservative. I, I wasn't worried about their reaction. But there was something to me. I've just always been sort of uh, intensely private about relationships. And when you come out as gay, you're not just saying like, I want to, to like have a, like a, a partnership with a woman. You're also saying, I want to have sex with women. And so that was, so that act of coming out, it's like talking to your parents about sex in this sort of oblique way. And I avoided that. And uh, eventually it's like my parents met my girlfriend, you know, I referred to her as my, as my friend or whatever. And then at one point my mom called me and she said, you know, we know you're gay. And I said, who, you know, who told you, did, did my brother tell you, did my sister tell you? And she said, no one, your father has gaydar. <laughs> and so that's sort of how it progressed. Nobody was surprised when I came out. I, maybe, uh, maybe some ex-boyfriends who thought they were to blame for it. And I said, no, you're not to blame for it. It's this, you know, my girlfriend is to blame for it. Um, but that was sort of my, my experience. And, and after I came out, I immediately turned into one of the, the gay people or queer people who annoy me today in the sense that everything became about this identity for, for a couple of years, you know, it's very exciting to come out, to come out. It's not just that the world sort of makes sense to you in this way. Uh, I was very proud of it. A friend of mine compared it to finding Jesus, you know, in the sense that I was proselytizing all the time, like someone, you know, I'd be at the grocery store and someone would ask me paper or plastic and I would come out to them. You know, it, it did become this very intense part of my, of my um, identity. That's 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 very common. Yes. I mean, in most yes. people's coming out experiences, you go through a kind of everyone must know I'm gay now uh, feel about it. And yeah. It also has that, I think as Jamie was saying, that kind of liberation into the truth. You know, you get the sense that everything now is more honest, which yeah. is, to my mind, I mean, for me, to go back another God knows how many, well, the 70s um, when I was a kid, uh, uh I can honestly say I had never heard the word gay or homosexual ever uttered in my presence by another human being. Occasionally you'd hear it on the radio. And then when I looked at TV, all I had were Mr. Humphreys uh, in Are You Being Served? And other really campy guys on TV. Like well, Larry there's always a Pope. <laughs> well, I was, well, then he was super straight, you got to remember. I mean... Uh, Waitiwa, John Paul II, is as straight as his predecessor mm -hmm. is is maybe differently inclined. Uh, Successor, you mean? Oh my goodness! I am now in the middle of a thunderstorm. I, I hope people can can't hear that pattering down on top of me. But no. uh, this is a uh, this is further evidence that felt Fred Phelps is right. <laughs> <laughs> he we knew. <laughs> Just wait for the thunderbolt. <laughs> yeah. And of course, in in high school. No one was gay except uh, Johnny Pancha, who is like four years above me, who was the brother of this other Pancha. It was all boys. The other Pancha was this unbelievably hot rugby player guy. And his brother had basically the same sort of frame and everything. But 
came to came to school in uh, full makeup every day hey. with lipstick, all of it. And I just remember being just in awe of this person. I mean, it, it, and, and the wit, I was also in awe of the school, which clearly decided, and I think in a, a very sane way, not to suppress this, not to in any way single him out, but to let it happen. And he, the way in which he conducted himself was such, he was not subject to being beaten up or bullied. There was just a self-confidence about this guy um, that, that really amazed me. And then later on in my school career, they started admitting girls um, because it went private and needed more money and new students. Um, and so the, the first day the girls were arrived at school, uh, Johnny showed up in the girls' uniform with the dress and everything. So I'm not sure whether he was gay or trans or just uh, that. At that point, it was like the late 70s. He could have been punk right. or glam rock. You've never looked it, him up? I, well, the truth is I went back and when I asked about him, they told me he died in his oh. 20s. Uh, and of course, there's no way of talking about my coming out in this sense, and I won't bore people with it, but but without that specter, you, 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 you grew up uh, at a time, first of all, where it was never mentioned, and secondly, it killed everybody. Yeah. And uh, I never absorbed homophobia from my family at all. Um, and that was a, that's a wonderful gain. But of course, the church to which I was devoted uh, represented another huge challenge. What did your but parents say when you came out? Um, you. I've, I've told this story before, but anyway, my, my mom said, what? <laughs> and I said, I'm gay. She said, what does that mean? And I said, I'm a homosexual. And she said, oh, my God, I better go make a cup of tea, <laughs> which is what the English do in when, you know, when Hitler was actually bombing London. They were making tea in a furious fashion. The power went out in the in the halfway game between England and Germany because everybody made a cup of tea at the same time. <laughs> Put the kettle on, and there was massive shortages. Suddenly, a whole country acted as one. Um, where was I? Uh, uh, and then she left the room, <clears throat> helpfully, leaving me with my father, who was, um, you know, he was captain of the town rugby team, captain of his high school rugby team, international athlete. Uh, incredibly straight in so many ways uh and i was terrified my, my brother and sister said do not do not tell him and anyway and i looked over at him and he was bent over sobbing which was really not what i expected because i'd never seen him cry before and uh so i being all i'm out and gay i'm here to explain it for you <laughs> was Dad, don't cry. Why are you crying? There's no need to cry. I'm really happy now. Everything is great. There's no need. And it just went on. And finally, I said, well, tell me why you're crying, and I'll try and address it. And he said, looked up finally, looked at me and said, I'm crying because of everything you must have gone through when you were growing up, and I never did anything to help you. Wow. So that was, that was my dad. Wow. And our relationship changed completely at that point. And, and I, I, it's nice because he, he died and maybe I should honor him this way because he, he, he did rise to the occasion and not every father rose to the occasion, not every mother rose to the occasion. Although I think it was more often 
than people would actually believe when people come down to their own son or daughter. I mean, there can be horrible conflicts, but then it's also true that there have been wonderful reconciliations in that in that process. But then it was, you know, then it was death. And then, and then when you come back and tell your parents you have HIV, yeah, and my dad's face just—it was like it, it like it was like looking at a hill, in experiencing a landslide. Just every feature of his face fell, and so then I was basically a dead man walking, as far as my family was concerned, for uh, two or three years, which is another interesting phenomenon. So, and then of course my generation hit. AIDS and all the rest of it. So I, you, I was on the sort of other side of this mountain. You were on just the other side of it, although it was, it, I'm not saying it wasn't anyway. What do you think, how does a gay kid today look out of the world? How does he or she orient him or herself, if I'm allowed to use the binary in that fashion? I think it really depends on where you are still. You know, uh -huh. there are, there's a, a, a vast difference between a private school in Brooklyn and a public school in Mississippi, I think. I, I, I would guess that on average, it is still easier for people to come out as gay. Um, and as we will probably talk about, come out as various different genders or other sexualities that didn't have names or didn't exist when, when we were coming out. Um, but I, I think it's still, it, it's still, as always depends on on who you're around and of course in the in the US and in the UK things are going to be very different than they are in say Iran where people are still being murdered well there's they, sexuality. they also they have trans affirming healthcare in Iran according, <laughs> according to Sir, yeah right Charlotte uh, yeah sister Charlotte Clymer mm -hmm. tweeting about how yeah. uh, how <laughs> how, uh, how Iran uh, is better for trans healthcare than uh, yeah. than the United States it's free it's free it might not be a choice, but it's free. Right, right. Um, I would agree with that. I think there's obviously, again, I'm speaking of someone from the from the Northeast who grew up in Boston, whose you know parents were also very very welcoming, and a lot of it is contingent upon what sort of family you you grow up in. Um, but I think it's undeniable that over the past, I mean, I think it gets better almost every year. Certainly, to quote that mm -hmm. that Katie's former employer. Uh, um, <laughs> but I actually I wonder if it's now maybe more confusing for gay kids growing up because there's all these other things going on now, right? So there's trans identity, there's non-binary identities. These were not really spoken of that much when I was growing up and thinking about coming out of the closet 20 years ago. Uh, and I wonder if that's become more confused now almost because there's almost there's sort of this panoply of identities which you can fit yourself into. Um, whereas it used to just be, okay, are you gay? Are you straight? Maybe there's this very small portion of the population that's bisexual. Uh, and it seems like a lot of gay people around my age, Katie, you probably agree. They, a lot of people went through a bi phase for a couple of years mm -hmm. uh, before they became gay. And I'm not denying bisexual identity, but it is, I, I know for a lot of gay people, it is sort of a, um, a step, transition. a transition, yeah. so <laughs> to speak. Um, do, you, do you think that maybe some of these new invented genders, they, the pan, the gender fluid femme mass person or whatever. Do you think in some ways they also perform the function of helping you avoid saying yes? Yes. Cause I think one of the, the way yeah. The, cause I, the way binary I think I, I'm sorry. No, no, I think, I think one of the great achievements you could say of the gay rights movement 
was to allow people to express their masculinity or femininity in ways that might not be standard, right? So the, the whole, the, one, one of the great achievements of the gay rights movement has been to say there's no one way to be a man and there's no one way to be a woman. And if you want to be a bull dyke and wear overalls and, and Doc Martens, then that's okay. And you're still a woman. And, you know, RuPaul, uh, he is a fabulous gay man. He wears a dress and he's beautiful. Um, when he's performing as a woman, but he's also, he's no less a man because of it. And now because of sort of this non-binary option and in another way, you could say some aspects of the transgender movement are sort of reifying the gender binary uh, and making it so that uh, kids who are growing up and might be an effeminate gay boy who likes to play with Barbies, um, as I did for a year or two, maybe. Or if you're a if you're a tomboy girl who likes to play softball and I don't know whatever lesbians do, Katie, um, there might be pressure. Play softball. Yeah, softball. Uh, there might be you know there's 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 more pressure um, to yeah. and there might be parents who would rather have I don't know I'm just I'm not I think Katie knows more about this than I do but there may be parents who would maybe rather have their effeminate gay son be um, a girl, right? Or maybe maybe that's easier for some people. Maybe that's e I'm just speculating here. So I'm working on a, on a piece right now for Barry Weiss's newsletter about, uh, about gender and, and, and sort of trans issues. And someone I interviewed recently brought up a point that I hadn't thought of before, which is that, so we know there are studies going back 40 years of, of kids who, have, who, who present at gender clinics because they have gender dysphoria, discomfort with their biological sex. And we know from 30, almost 40 years of studies that the vast majority of those kids desist, which means essentially grow out of it and grow up to be gay or lesbian. But these studies, when they when they started, most mostly these kids weren't getting puberty blockers. And now if a kid is gender nonconforming, has some discomfort with their body or their or their their place in the world, perhaps, and they go to a gender clinic and they're prescribed puberty blockers, puberty blockers inhibit sexual development. So if you take puberty blockers and then go on to take cross-sex hormones, you aren't really given the, you don't really have the sexual development that would enable you to say, oh, actually I'm gay, right? So if you're a kid and I was a tomboy growing up and if I had gone on, on puberty blockers or whatever, immediately, you know, before puberty and then, and then cross-sex hormones or whatever, I wouldn't have had this stage where you're sort of coming to terms with your own sexuality because puberty blockers actually stops that. And I, I find that very interesting and it's something that I hadn't really thought of that, that puberty blockers might actually be inhibiting sexual development uh, in, a, in, the, in the exact period when adolescents, youth, children would be exploring their sexuality and coming to terms with their own sexuality. Yeah, and I think puberty can be a really clarifying thing for a gay kid. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just uh, speaking from my own lived experience. Uh, I I didn't really know what it was to be gay because partly because no one told me and there was nothing in the culture and maybe because I, I mean, I wasn't even that stereotypical. I did use my my mother's makeup, but I did it. I did it to get a mascara to make the the tiny little boy hairs on my chest. You did it in a non-gay way, a totally straight way of using your mother's you hair. Right. In a way, I don't know what that would be, but I just, An all I wanted was bear. to have a hairy chest. That was all I wanted. That was all. I remember, and I, this is so confusing. I remember watching a sketch once on TV where uh, 
it was a in a doctor's office where a guy had to take his shirt off and lie down and be examined and he had this giant furry chest and i was just like aghast at like seven or eight and then the next day i'm like can i be a doctor (laughs) (laughs) um uh I I I wonder about that. I mean, I I and you're right. The paradox is that maybe the that effeminate gay gender non-conforming kids uh, are through the puberty blocker option are being denied any chance of figuring out if they're gay or not. Yeah, um, they're being preemptively guided towards a quite radical alternative, which is to be trans, and. The argument here this really does whittle down to does this happen? Yeah. And and what we're told repeatedly is that no, 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 no. Only the those kids that repeatedly and obsessively and continually insist that they're in another gender, uh, that that we would ever think of doing this. And puberty blockers are a way in which they get time to figure it out, as opposed to um, my worry, my fear, let's call it a fear, because I don't know how we can figure this out. Uh, but I uh, is that, in fact, gay kids are, are being forced in the most homophobic way to identify as a man acting man or as a woman acting woman uh, before they're ready to be gay. Well, it's an irony. And it's an irony, it's, isn't it, in that, yeah. in that during the 1970s? Well, I mean, what was the, the charge against gay people against teaching in public schools, right? With Anita Bryant, that they wanted to convert your children. Um, and it seems now, at least the, what you're raising, Andrew, you're, you're raising the possibility that it's gay kids who are being um, led into a certain lifestyle, perhaps, that might not be in their, in their interests, I think, which is sort of the, 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 the irony behind all of this. What worries me in particular, Katie, is lesbians, because we have seen an increase in the number of boys seeking to seeking to transition, but not massively. Right. Whereas girls have seen this exponential rise in seeking transition and many at the age of early adolescence, uh, middle adolescence. And, and we're talking about three to 4,000% increases over the last 10 years. Uh, That, that would make me worried that lesbians, lesbian girls are being kind of panicked into becoming men. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is something that I, I wrote about for your newsletter and, and something that I've talked about a few times. I think that this is obviously happening and, and people debate this, but I can see it happening. I can see it happening, not just with, with teens, but I can see it happening within my own community. I should keep a spreadsheet of the number of natal females I know who have transitioned. I mean, so my first, I, I met my, the, the, I, I met a trans person for the first time that I was aware of when I was 18, when I was uh, working at a, at a whitewater rafting company. And at the time it was, you know, I, I sort of, my only, um, experience with 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 trans people was like sort of via Jerry Springer right this was still the time when this was in the late 90s early 2000s this was still a time when 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 this population was frankly thought of as freaks you know and and things have obviously really improved for this population which is i think is a good thing but so i, I met you know one trans person in the first 18 years of my life and in the last 18 years of my life about half the the dykes i know have transitioned. And I'm not talking about just in, in Seattle and Brooklyn and places like that. I, I spent most of my life in North Carolina and, and these pockets 
of of these queer communities, it's happening at a really shocking rate. And I'm not talking about teenagers, I'm talking about adults. And so that to me says that if if people my age and people in their 40s are going through transition at this rate, at this sky high rate, and uh, then what is this? If, and I think that this is partially social contagion, then for teenagers, it's going to be much more prominent. Um, and we we don't have great data on this now, but just anecdotally, I see this all the time: people transitioning from from female to male, or or adopting non-binary pronouns and, and identities. And it's very strange. It's very strange. It's it's you know, it's like everybody I know found Jesus at the same time. It's weird. I was watching Biden's LGBTQIA plus two S. LMNOP membership kind of like uh, convocation organized by HRC, I think, and something else. And one of the, I think it was one of the board members of HRC came on and with her eight-year-old kid who began, I'm a transgender child. And I'm like, you're a child. <laughs> I, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe that is who you are and maybe that will become evident as you grow older but i found presenting and certainly if that person that kid was wanting to be presented the other gender i would not stand in their way at all but i think being made public at eight as being trans is is a hell of a lot to put on a kid and i i just felt it was inappropriate i felt the same way. i don't i don't know if you I mean, do you, do you remember during the presidential campaign when pete Buttigieg was sort of presented with this nine-year-old boy at an event in the he was introduced as having a very special announcement to make. And the nine-year-old boy said, I'm gay and you inspire me. And there was this kind of heartwarming moment. And I know I was supposed to feel my heart warmed as a gay man, but I felt a little like uh, at nine years old, you're probably not really that having that many sexual thoughts, straight or gay. It's probably a little early to be declaring yourself something so personal. I mean, I can certainly look back on myself at nine and understand now in hindsight, just like you can, Andrew, you can, Katie, I can understand like, oh, right. Like those really intense feelings I felt for my friend at like eight or nine, that was not just friendship. That was something deeper probably. But that doesn't mean that at that age, you are ready to make that announcement. No, or am I being am I being too? Uh... Well, again, it's a question of whether we're old fogies and we haven't we haven't lived through the childhood that a, a child today will live through, in which it will be much less weird to say those things. Um, whether they mean the same thing, it seems to me also that when we see these these surveys that suddenly half the country is right LGBTQ identifying, yeah. uh, my question is: Well, how many straight people are in the queue? And how are we judging whether these self descriptions are can we correct? talk about can we talk about the queue? Because I have serious issues with, mm -hmm. with the queue. And I think the queue? Yeah, I mean you, you can you, this is a this is a safe space. I mean I've never <laughs> I mean, well I should just, until until it gets broadcast. Well I was gonna say, first of all, it says it says something about about this that half of what we've discussed right now would be qualified as violent. Violence, violent right. language. Uh, we are saying things that is, you know, that are murdering people. This is the kind of rhetoric that is now used in these sorts of discussions. I think that's that's a problem. But put that aside. I'm glad for a just put us all on a list. Right. 
Um, I've always had a we're already on we're already on all yeah, of those. We're on the list. I've yeah. always had a problem with with the term queer. Um, and it's uh, partly maybe because I'm a historian and I've written a book and I understand that queer was uh, oftentimes the last thing a gay person heard before his head was bashed in with a brick. Um, so there's that. Um, fag was the word that I... Well, by the way, what's amazing to me, I don't want to stop you, but, but, but what's amazing to me is if anything would be the kind of, the kind of language that could trigger someone, if you accept the rules that they have right. about no oppressive oppressive language, yes. not even the slightest connection to anything uh, that could be regarded as as, as an ist yeah. of some kind, um, but because it traumatizes people, but queer, a word that actually really does have those stigmatizing and triggering effects on a lot of gay people. Mm. Now, let's say... Let's even exaggerate this and say only those over 40 sure. have, have experienced yeah. that kind of abuse in that way. But still, they exist, don't they? Yeah. And, and suddenly queer is imposed. Right. Those who say they feel triggered and hurt by it are told to shut the fuck up. Mm. This has been a wonderful repurposing of it. The New York Times uses now yes. queer people. Yes. The term queer people to mean what? Yeah. Like, what does that include? What does it now? Now, am I being just pedantic here? Uh, it does seem to me that if there are as many straight people as gay people in in an LGBTQ two I two IA plus two S movement, then then it cease, ceases to be a, a gay movement. Well, there's two problems. With, I think. Uh, go ahead. Well, go no, go ahead, Katie. I think we should re reclaim the term queer and make it so that straight people can't say it, so they have to say the Q word. <laughs> I would support that. Absolutely. But it seems yeah. that actually the only people who use the word queer, it seems, are like really professional type activist type gay people and then like really woke straight people. Like I actually don't have many gay friends who identify as queer, who use that term. Um, it seems like something that has been imposed from a small activist, loud minority in, in cahoots with sort of a uh, kind of, you know, straight woke um uh, uh, group of people. Um, well, I mean, my the problem thing about that dynamic is that the straight straight woke people can't ever push back against even the craziest far left uh, right. queer stuff because to do so is to be homophobic because right. they make no distinction between an argument and a person uh, or an argument and a skin color. So they're always surrendering, uh, and because they're also don't want to be charged in any way with being homophobic, and they. They fear that if they say anything against what these people are saying, they'll be tarred that way. So the thing gets ratcheted massively out of proportion to where it might otherwise be. Well, it just seems that there's a fundamental disagreement in terms of the word queer. I think it was originally adopted by people in the 90s, like queer nation and whatnot, um, to basically say we are part of a sexual vanguard and we, re we reject bourgeois values. We reject your gay marriage. We reject your gays in the military. We reject your white picket fence. Um, which is fine. You know what? Like I am, again, a pluralist to each his own. It's the imposition of that word and that meaning on the rest of us. It's the well, kind I, of- I assume that, I, I think the people who, who originated that word probably dislike the fact that it has become the catch-all term for sexual minorities, because you're right, this was a political stance. And now yeah. it means Ikea couches and uh, in vodka brands. And, it, and it's, it's capital. It's, uh, it's not punk. It's just the catch-all. 
Um, and then there's this phenomenon, maybe you've written about this, Katie, of what, what, what I like to call queer face, which is, um, mm. which is sort of people who are, for all intents and purposes, straight, just right. announcing one day, uh, I'm queer. And, you know, well, it's, a, it's a get out of jail free card. If you've done something, if you've offended people, just come out as bisexual. Right. I'm part, of the, or I'm part of the queer community. And I find it, right. I find it offensive. Uh, right. I, I'm not offended by much, but I am offended by this because it, it seems like it's a lot easier to do this than, you know, it's very hard to pull off a Rachel Doljol. Like that's, you know, you're going to yeah. get, you're going to get caught and you're going to get condemned pretty and, and, and ridiculed. It's, but queerness, it's like anyone can just, it's like, it's like a piece of jewelry now and you can just yeah. put it on and. Um, you can apply for certain jobs or certain fellowships as a queer person. Um, it's really one of the easiest sort of minority identities to exploit. Uh, and I, and I, I you resent just, that. You just have to dye your hair blue. Yeah. And say so you listen to uh, the Pet Shop always, Boys. Been, yeah. But I'm trying to understand how this happens. You know, how, how are they able to define the language this way? I do think you, and this has been the struggle of my life. When I first came out, when I first started looking at the gay world in the 80s, I looked around me in the media and in all the representations of gay people in the media, and they weren't represented at all. None of these people. It had actually kept me from going into a gay bar because I thought, well, they're all going to be, you know, like, like someone out of a Christopher Guest movie or or they're going to be militantly political, or they're going to, you know, that I won't have anything in common with any of these people. And lo and behold, I walk in and it feels like I'm just home. All these people like me, they don't, none of this is- I remember really I, had the exact, I had the exact same experience. And the reason, the reason is, in my view, and it's a simple reason, is that gays that are not left-wing tend to go, get on with their lives. Yeah. And if they can, either for bad reasons, avoid politics, or for good reasons, uh, have politics of a different kind, but they're certainly not going to be the people who are most likely going to be asked to go on television to represent the LGBTQIA2S plus movement. And they're certainly not the kind of people to become journalists for the Village Voice or for the New York Times or for all these elite media where their gay people are all in the same, basically forced in the same mold. I think that's more of a recent development though, Andrew. I think if you look at the early out gay journalists like yourself, Randy Schiltz at the San Francisco Chronicle, um, there were, there were uh, people at, at the New York Times, a series of them who are, who are all, I think, um, who, who yeah, did I not think of Rick Burke, for example, who Rick was Burke, an absolute devil yeah. of objectivity and yeah. standards of that kind. Yeah, I think it's- um, yeah, you know, but it has become this upper because the more journalism has become super upper middle class. Yeah, a lot of those people were not from, from the upper middle class. I mean, in a way, we shouldn't be complaining, right? Like the fact that straight people, the fact that being queer is now considered cool as 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 as, as opposed to being the thing that would get you beat up on the playground, and at least in, again in certain circles, uh, large and influential ones, it is a sign of progress in a way. I mean, there, there's, totally. a, there, there's, there's an obnoxious element to it that, that, that we've been complaining about. But if you're asking me, you know, would I, would I rather have this to complain about as opposed to what we were complaining about 30 years ago? Uh, there's no question. Yeah, this is, yeah. The, this is the problem with, with progress is that it becomes cool. You know, and there was a, so there was a, a study that came out recently in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's called Prevalence of Non-Heterosexual Identity and Same-Sex Sexual Contact Among High School Students in the U.S. from 2015 to 2019. Hmm. And what they found was, was, was 
massive increases in the number number of, of people who identify as LG as non-heterosexual. So uh, let's see. The prevalence of non-heterosexual identity increased by 41.4%. Mm. This was mostly among natal females. Um, surprise, surprise. What they didn't find was that homosexual activity has huh. gone up. So the interesting thing about this study is that the authors, they posit this as just a, uh, a reflection of the fact that it's easier to come out now rather than the fact that maybe it's possible that these people are wrong yeah. about their sexual identity, that they're adopting this thing because it's trendy, um, you know, because you can't say that in a paper. But it is clear that that teenagers have are coming out at higher rates, What isn't changing it. They're not sucking more dick uh, or whatever. They're just <laughs> coming out. No, I, I, the evidence is that they're, they're having much less sex than previous generations, um, actually, in, in the younger type. But there is something... I don't want to say there's something very sexless about the trans movement. <laughs> it is not erotic. I mean, it, it doesn't have that slight libidinous edge and, and sort of rude edge of the old gay male movement. Uh, it's politically correct. Which is not which, which is not, not, not really hot. Not, not, not. I mean, am I wrong? Jamie, you look like you disagree. No, with I that. just I have this view that sort of the last the most the most masculine place in the world today in America is probably a gay leather bar. Uh, yeah. That is because masculinity uh, it's being critiqued. It's being uh, what are the words that we use in critical theory? It's being it's being reassessed. Toxic masculinity. It's being interrogated. It's being and so um, if you're a straight guy, I mean, you have to really you know watch what you say, watch watch what you do. There's all these new rules about. Uh, dating and courtship, um, but within certain gay male uh, subcultures, of which Andrew was far more familiar with than I, uh, to, eat, to, eat, to each his own. But um, I mean, you know, I bet like the, the, to the extent that they still exist, you know, every city used to have the Eagle, right? It was like the gay leather bar in every city. Yeah. That's probably the most masculine place in the country. The most unapologetically well, masculine, just people, you know, in all, you know, leather chaps, sniffing each other's armpits, just like out and out masculinity. Toxic. You want to call it toxic. Yeah, you want to call it toxic, whatever, but it's it's masculine. It's not it's not okay. femme. Um, I want to go back to a point you made, Jimmy, because it kind of hit home to me, which is. Okay, so they call it the LGBTLQI2V plus five. <laughs> movement why do you fucking care like i mean it's it, why do you care and, and I'm, I'm i ask myself well why do i care i mean i care because i i don't like the experience of gay men just turned into soup uh, alphabet soup um and lesbians i have no problem and, and in fact great enthusiasm and lesbians but great enthusiasm for people who want to express their sex sex in a form of gender that is as inventive and as varied as possible. I'm all for it. I don't, I, I, the last thing I want is, is, is for people to be restricted into uh, gender stereotypes. So, so why do I object? I, I think it's because it's attached to a movement and an entire community, which is misdescribing reality. Um, although maybe it's better describing it than they used to. Uh, because and here's my here's, here's my point is that essentially the gay rights battle is done. Yeah, we have 
we have marriage, we have the military, we have mm-hmm. anti-employment discrimination laws, we mm-hmm. have hate crime law, we have yep. more yep. than previously we thought civil rights needed. And with Bostock, uh, we have trans rights essentially established in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which if you had presented, uh, which if, by the way, it had been a Democratic president and not President Trump, they would have they would have taken as the final amazing breakthrough in tra- in the movement for trans rights. Uh, Except they it, keep it, it keeps creeping, right? It's not just about employment discrimination or housing discrimination. No, it's also about point. sports, and it's about you know. The, in some ways, it, it is sort of beautiful, you know. From the beginning of the of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s fighting for for racial equality and fighting for the ability to vote and things like that and have equality under the law. And now we're fighting over the the right of a of a 50-year-old divorced father of two to use the women's room. And there's something sort of beautiful about that. Yeah, but I'm I'm and the point I'm making to that is that that's all that all we've got left. The, right. the, the gay and lesbian civil rights movement is basically over with. So yeah. this, this should be called a new movement. It is a movement that seems to me to be legitimately at this point a, a sub-movement to the racial justice movement, actually, increasingly. It doesn't want, it certainly doesn't want gay white men. We are not really that welcome in those places. You don't even get a couch. Actively. <laughs> The asexuals get their own Ikea couch, Mm. which, as someone said on Twitter, should really be a chair and nothing for Dan. (laughs) Should I explain this real quick so people aren't totally lost? Oh, go ahead and be counsel. Go on. Okay. So so Ikea released today a, uh, a bunch of chairs that they designed in honor of Pride Month. And they have one for like pansexuals and asexuals and and trans people. The bisexual couch is the best because one of the cushions says no one believes you. So it's like <laughs> so it's like the, the biggest angst you of bisexual. Right? It's the obvious and joke. I, and I, <laughs> right. And, and I and I wonder like, do people have to put these together themselves? Like, do you you know like what did the directions look like? Anyway, there's no cat. So there's one for lesbians, pansexuals, asexuals, gender fluid, disgusting in the context of the couch. But there's nothing. They did not release one for gay men. Well, I just remember growing up hearing that joke. How do you fit three gay men on a bar stool? You turn it upside down. I mean, like <laughs> <laughs> they're actually doing that, but they're actually making this for real now. I find that kind of yeah. incredible. You're done now. You're done, Jimmy. <laughs> You're, anal sex jokes are not allowed. I mean, it's possible. Uh, like best case scenario, they couldn't find a single gay man who was willing to partake in this. Uh, in this particular pride celebration, yeah, we, we would have we would have we we would just look at the de- couch designed for us and say it's absolutely fucking ghastly, hideous, hideous, hideous. Of, hideous. Yeah. Of, and you wouldn't you wouldn't be shopping at IKEA anyway. Of course, but that's the punchline. The point is, it's kind of reflective that they've moved on. It's not about gay men anymore. It's not about yeah. lesbian. Well, women. you've been erased it from Stonewall. It's about right. inventing a, a million different types of gender. But it does seem here's here's the issue I do think it, it does matter, which is that insofar as this movement believes that the gender determines your sex, essentially, uh, that gender identity is deeper than biological sex in terms of our 
human existence so that trans women are women, not trans women are trans women who should be treated exactly the same way as women in every civil, legal, and political respect, but who are obviously not exactly the same as a regular woman. And I, I didn't mean to giggle now. It's true. I mean, that, and in a few tiny cases, such as uh, when you're in sports, where the, where the difference between having grown up a man and having grown up a woman is confers clear structural advantages on the, the one who grew up as a man. And sometimes these personal spaces, I mean, the shower stuff is kind of irrelevant, uh, but the, uh, the women's shelter kind of question, are there some legitimately uh, only biologically uh, originally women uh, should stay here or, or because someone with a dick will feel, make them feel terrified or trigger things. These are people who are very traumatized. I think you can make exceptions in those cases without, without being brutal. Uh, and as long as the transgender people are, are able to find uh, uh, shelter, that I mean, that's the main concern. Um, but essentially, these things are not about civil rights anymore. They are about culture. They are about a philosophical attack on biological sex, an attempt to make the whole concept of biology a product and function of white supremacy culture, which has to be disabled. Uh, uh, at which point I'm not, I'm not just not part of that movement. I'm actually opposed to it. I have to be opposed to it. And so surely we just let it go. Let it go. I, it bothers, well, just, it bothers me. Yes. As an individual, you can let it go and not associate with it. Um, what bothers me as a, as a budding historian is when the his, when the history and the facts are distorted. And, you know, I have this pet peeve, uh, around Stonewall, which I think, you know, Stonewall, first of all, it's, its importance in the gay rights movement, I think is exaggerated for political reasons, but put that aside, it was a pivotal and important moment, but just this concerted effort to completely write out the gay men and lesbians who actually were uh, the people who were the patrons of that bar, mostly gay men. Because um, as we know, first of all, there aren't many bars that cater to both gay men and women, usually you have lesbian bars and Gay bars and Stonewall was was mostly gay men, but there were lesbians. And in fact, it, it probably was a butch lesbian who threw the first punch. But this 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 concerted effort to rewrite that history and claim it was trans women of color, which really picked up in earnest around 2015 when this movie Stonewall came out. Um, and just every year it gets worse and worse and worse. And the history is so blatantly clear. I mean, I I wrote what I think is sort of the most concise, definitive you know, arguments or not even argument, just sort of case presenting the facts. There's a, you know, there's a book you can read called Stonewall by David Carter, or you can just read the piece I wrote for Tablet in 2019. And yet it's almost as if, I mean, there's just, it's just a, it's just, a, it's, it's, it's just a kind of stubborn refusal to acknowledge the truth. And it almost offends me on a level, forget having, being a gay man. It's just like, why are you so, like, if you'll lie about this and you'll ignore the facts about this, and it happens everywhere now. I mean, I'm getting emails from groups that have nothing to do with gay rights. And they're, it's sort of their celebration of pride emails, right? Which is what every corporation and nonprofit does now. And it's just part of the rote language now of Stonewall. You know, trans women of color started this movement. And it's like, if you'll lie about this, like, what else will you lie about? And uh, as a journalist and someone who cares about history, 
I'm just, I don't like it when people make stuff up. It's just, it bothers me. It sends a bad sign about your intentions. Um, and I don't, and, uh, and that, that bothers me more is the kind of distortion of history than whatever they're, you know, doing, um, now legislatively, I think. Okay. Yeah. You're gonna... I think Jamie really, really said it well. To me, the issue is less about rights or even what, what some feminists would say the, the infringement of their, their own spaces. It's, uh, it's the tactics involved, this lying about history or, or trying to rewrite history. Um, not just that, the denial of science. There's, a very, there's very much an emperor has no clothes feeling to the situation. When I, when I see people say things like, not just trans women are women, but trans women are female, um, I, I don't like that. I don't like being being sort of gaslit, I guess, you know, to borrow a term into 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 believing things that are that are on their face, not true. So so that's my issue with a lot of this movement. And then also the tactics people use to silence others. You know, that's a major issue. The fact that in the US, there's sort of a blackout in mainstream media about talking about the reality of of of, pu of something like puberty blockers, and that's not as as much the case in the UK, but in the US, uh, if you want to get something published in the New York Times about trans stuff, it's pretty much has to be sort of toe the the party line with with a few exceptions. Can I, and I don't uh, like that. I don't like. Yeah, I just want to build up into what you said. You basically said it's the denial of truth and the silencing of people, and that offends yeah. and that offends me as a gay person because when I think of gay people and all that we've achieved in this country. It is, it is through the complete opposite tactics. We once were silenced. Gay people in this country were silenced. And you, Andrew, you, you talk about not having heard the word gay or homosexual. I mean, all the euphemisms that I've found in my research, okay, the way that the, the, the words or the phrases that were used to describe this, when it was described in the newspapers, it, it often was never even spoken about because it was such a horrible, horrible thing. Um, homosexuality. It was worse than being a murderer. Okay. It was worse than being a communist in Cold War Washington was to be a homosexual. It was literally unspeakable. And so for gay people to overcome that, it is such an amazing victory. And I, I really do encourage people to watch the documentary about the lavender scare and to learn about someone like Frank Kameny, because to, 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 to be the first gay person in this country uh, to be fired in 1957 to say, you know what, I'm actually not going to take this because there's no reason why I can't have a job because I'm gay. And then he leads the first protest outside the White House in 1965, four years before Stonewall. You can look at the photos online. I mean, that is such a victory of speech and expression. And every gay person in our lives, we when we come out of the closet, we are telling, I hate this expression, our truth, but we are. We're telling a very important truth about ourselves in a way that straight people never have to do that. A straight person never has to announce. There's this great scene in this, this movie, um, Love, Simon, which is the first sort of gay teen rom-com, where they sort of imagine, you know, they're, 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 they're trying to show what it's like to come out for straight people. And you have all these straight kids announcing to their parents, oh, you know, I'm straight. And it's this funny kind of absurd moment because straight people never have to do that. But every gay person has to do that. And so... For us, and also, um, so 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 to see the uh, to, to see gay people of all the people in the world, right? Of all the of all the groups in the world that would be clamoring for shutting down speech and for 
denying truth. For it to be gay people, I find such a, a shame. It's such a shame. And it makes me, it just makes me so sad. I, I think it's too. mostly I queer feel, people. There you uh, go. I feel strongly about that. I, I remember um, David France, who, who, who did mm -hmm. a wonderful documentary, How to Survive a Plague, and also a great book, which I reviewed actually for the New York Times, uh, did, a, did a movie about a documentary about Marsha P. Johnson, and who was the other person I'm trying to remember? Sylvia Rivera. Sylvia Rivera. Yeah. And I was interested in them. They are interesting characters in the story. Uh, and neither was there the night it started. And they didn't seem to play. Well, Marsha Marcia showed up maybe around later in the evening. Maybe later in the evening on the first night. Yeah. Okay. Uh, she did not throw the first brick and she was not a, yeah. But, and, and. And they're they're in, they are very interesting stories. How they died, how they lived, questions about exactly whether Marsha P. Johnson uh, identified as trans. trans. No, anyway. No. Um, but uh, they were labeled in the documentary co-founder of the LGBTQ rights movement. Co-founder. Now that means there was no LGBTQ rights movement before. Uh, and and I was at a public screening with David, and I he I I put my hand up, and he took foolishly took my question, which was, you you stated as fact something in that that is not true. First of all, and you know someone like Frank Kemeny, you know, a couple of decades before was was taking the stand. You also know about what was happening in the '30s, and this is just not true. And he said, well, it's the truth I want to put forward. Alternative facts, you might say. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that insistence, which again, when you think about it, is falsifying the historical record because you prefer it, prefer one skin color to another, essentially. Well, you see this or all the time with, 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 this with, is, this with is, Pulse. Um, or with the death of, of Matthew Shepard. Pulse, we now know from subsequent reporting and subsequent legal cases, was not a, was not a targeted anti-gay hate crime. The shooter, Omar Mateen, apparently asked where all the women were. He, he didn't realize this was a gay bar. And this, and this has never been, this, the reality of the situation like, doesn't make it less tragic, but the reality has never sort of permeated the mass consciousness, even though- If you, if you asked anybody about the Matthew Shepard story and said, yeah. you do realize that he was murdered by his lover. Right. Which is something no one denies at right. this point. Right. Well, no, I think a lot of people it do deny it, or they say that, that or they, right. They it, say it that, it, that it's internal homophobia, that it could still have been, even though, so, for your listeners who might not be aware of this, Stephen Jimenez, a, a writer, went to to uh, Laramie, Wyoming, and spent like 13 years working on a book about this. And and what he found was that from his reporting that this death was over a, a bunch of drugs and money, and that yes, Matthew Shepard was killed by by his lover. And I learned this just a couple of years ago. Uh, Wesley Lauer or Wesley uh, Yang sent me an sent me an article. And the Guardian about this, and it and it really blew my mind. And it was one of those sort of is the earth actually flat moments because it was so contrary to everything that I'd been led to believe this. And I was talking about it. I worked at the Stranger at the time, and I was talking about it with one of my colleagues, a gay man. 
And he said, well, does it really matter if Matthew Shepard wasn't actually a hate crime because so much good came from this? And I think it does matter. And maybe this is just this is this is why I would never be a good activist. But I think it, the truth always matters. And, uh, and we shouldn't perpetuate lives because they they further political agenda. I think particularly people. The, the really here's also the other side of that story, which is that uh, Matthew. Sh the reason for the horrible brutality, and of course, no one's, no one's in any way, not attempting to minimize just how horrifying this murder was and how brutally this person was killed. It makes more sense if you realize that the person who was killing him had been up on meth for right. four days in a row. And that's the kind of unhinged behavior that is, is not unknown, certainly, for long-term crystal meth users. And crystal meth is, I would argue, the single most potent and important problem facing gay men in America. It, it is destroying a generation uh, of human beings. I've watched it do it to people. And... If the Matthew Shepard case had been had been reported in any way truthfully, we might have spent the last 20 years figuring out how to tackle that real problem instead of perpetuating the myth that someone who was an obvious redneck stranger pummeled him to death because he was gay. Right. Um, in a college town. In a college town. And 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 not only that, but they still put on the Larry project. I think it's the most produced it, play in the United States. I think yeah. it's the most produced play in the United States. It has yeah. to be. And it's based on lies. And it, yeah. it, there's, a, there's a level of, I don't know, it's amazing. It's like the double standard with the word queer. It's just amazing how this rigid narrative is, is, is just uh, completely uh, contemptuous of, of the truth. Well, it's sainthood. I mean, Matthew Shepard is one of our patron saints. And he is actually in the national. There is a shrine to him yeah. in the National Cathedral. Yeah. And when I've sort of said, "Do shouldn't we complicate this story?" Just do, do you, I've either got what Katie said, which is it does so much good. Who cares? Which is really, really what a lot of people say. Um, uh, or it is we can't say the truth because his mother is still alive. Well, Andrew, I think there's a difference here. I think there's an important point here, which is that you and and I think to some extent myself, and I don't know about Katie, you've been a very outspoken opponent of hate crimes laws in principle. Yeah. In principle, right? Yeah. So yeah. you didn't yeah. you didn't agree in principle and theory with the Matthew Shepard Hate Crimes Act, whereas the people who are on the opposite side of this do support that political goal, right? And so therefore, maybe more willing. To advance stories now. Look, there are there are other reasons why the story of Matthew Shepard, either you know whether it's the one presented by Stephen Jimenez or the one presented by Moises Kaufman. I mean, there's there's a reason that it should be taught in schools because it's it teaches us the evils of homophobia um, and whatnot. And that could be another reason why someone would say, well, it's doing so much good, right, for people to know about how horrible homophobia is. But I think it's important sure. to it's important to acknowledge that usually history is manipulated for a political end, right? And so for the Stonewall stuff, it is to advance a particular political cause involving transgender, I don't want to use the word rights or not, but certainly the transgender cause, right? If you can, um, if you can take that story and rewrite it so that it wasn't gay men who were responsible, but actually trans women, 
then you make um, gay men feel uh, that they are perhaps that they owe something to trans women now, transgender women now. Um, but again, this is not a healthy. I've had I've had someone directly tell me to my face, "We gave you your right. rights." There you go. Right. And now you're not standing up for us. And right. I, I, I'm right. I, I that literally, and that's that is not that is not rare at all. Mm -hmm. That's the narrative that people have. That's the narrative that people uh, portray. And it's amazing how powerful that can be, especially yeah, just, if it's yeah. backed up by every, every single resource. I just think resource. It's, it's, never a, it's never a good sign when a political movement uh, has to rewrite historical fact to advance their cause. I mean, the cause should either stand or fall on its own merits, and you should not have to lie and distort historical events to uh, promote them, particularly a people like gays and lesbians who have probably been lied and slandered about more than any people in the country. I mean, you think of the things that people used to believe about gay and lesbian people. Um, our very existence was illegal. We were uh, mentally insane until 1973. Okay, that's not that. That was when the American Psychological Association removed homosexuality from the DSM. Religion. I mean, you think of, and it still is bad in some religious denominations. But you just think of all the invective and the calumny that have been directed at gay people for centuries. Um, we should be the last group of people who uh, should resort to sort of deceptive tactics or rewriting history or outright lying when it comes to Stonewall to advance our cause. We have the truth on our side. And that's the other difference, I think, between sort of the old fashioned gay rights movement and whatever it is now, is that the gay movement always had it had biological science on its side. People are gay. You can't change them. You can't fix them. You can't convert them and you just look at all the all the all the destruction uh throughout the generations that have been caused to so many people and not just gay people look at all the, that at all also, the wives it is, also, uh, it is also true of, of trans people it's just not true i think uh i i believe actually that they're not lying about their a subjective uh, which to them is an objective experience of being a different gender than their biological right. sex. I think that's completely real. And valid, and, yes. And but, but to say that a condition of believing that is that you also have to believe that biology doesn't exist and that by some magic wand, that person's entire chromosomal, muscular, uh, childhood, adolescence, puberty is, is arbitrary. Right. Of course, you don't have to believe both those things. But this movement is about saying, if you want to support that, you have to support the other. And for those of us who have said, we're not that clear that we support that. In fact, we don't believe, we still believe in biology. We are treated as bigots, as outright bigots. We're actually, we, we forget about this, really. But you're told that you're transphobic so many times, not just, but a vicious, nasty, hateful, transphobic person you almost forget that you're not. I mean, yeah. they get the, the barrage of hostility, let alone uh, what people like someone like J.K. Rowling has gone through for saying something that I think is pretty self-evident and was expressed with extreme respect and care. And I just do not know how you have a dialogue with that. Katie, well, there, in, in some way, there's some benefit to this uh, rampant name-calling. I mean... Ever since I wrote a piece in 2017 on detransitioners, where which is the beginning of my fall from grace, 
And in response to that, people burn stacks of the of the newspaper of the stranger. They put up stickers around Seattle calling me transphobic. There's a sticker with a picture of my face calling me a Nazi sympathizer. There's one that calls me a Jordan Peterson sympathizer. It's hugely embarrassing. Um, but at some point, it like I know that I can't I can't combat the lie. It doesn't matter how many times I say I don't believe in bathroom bills. I'm opposed to these state bills banning a youth transition. It doesn't matter how many times I sort of assert my uh, my actual positions on this. The narrative will never change. And there's a certain freedom in that because it I can now I can say whatever I want because it doesn't it, you know, it's never going to change. So, you know, there's a there's a freedom in being being sort of canceled because you can actually speak your mind, especially if you are independently funded. There's also a kind of fanaticism around the trans thing that uh, among some, not all, but some of these activists that seems psychologically very uh, bizarrely uh, disproportionate. I mean, it's, it's, there is literally no space for any engagement uh, with anybody else. Uh, and I mean, the gay rights movement spent a very long time trying to educate people, coming out to people, talking, and this was the, this was the, the the manner in which we conducted that campaign for marriage rights especially i mean i put put out an anthology which include half of it with arguments against marriage equality right. from people like bill bennett imagine a gay rights person a, a trans rights person putting out a book saying trans rights pro and con and having half the book be gender critical people and half the people being um postmodern uh biology is a function of white supremacy people uh would never happen it would never happen. It would actually be a great book. Let's put it, it would be a great book. Maybe we should do it. We could yeah. just take excerpts and ask yeah. permission and to give people a guide and make it half and half because it, it kind of is. Uh, and, uh, and we, I did that because I was confident in the strength of my own arguments. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to shut down the others. In fact, I wanted to, I specifically tried to engage people in arguing. I went to fundamentalist churches. I went on, you know, Fox News. I went on conservative media. I, I really, I went, I talked to Catholic universities uh, uh, on the subject of homosexuality and natural law, uh, which was, I was so thrilled to get invited because it meant I could engage. And even if I didn't persuade anybody, just airing the subject, I thought, was beneficial to everyone. And they could better understand their opposition to it, or, as often happened, realize that they didn't really have that good or coherent opposition to it. And sort of slowly, and we, had, we converted a third of the country in 20 years. That's, and because we were, because it was the truth too, and because individually we witnessed it to people, like sons coming out to their fathers and uh, and people, um, uncles coming out to people, and of course AIDS did that in a, in abundance as well. Um, I'm going to end on that. I, I it's funny. I've been chatting. I had a great time the other night with with Peter Staley. He won't be thankful that I mentioned that we're old friends, um, and. We, we felt old, uh, and Peter's going Peter's to have a, a book out, the memoir out this fall, and people will be universally ecstatic about it, uh, except for the left. Believe it or not, Sarah Shulman hates Peter, Peter oh, Stanley. Wow. Uh, 
but here's the thing is that we my my generation this is not whining it's just it's explaining that my generation went through an incredible trauma and lived through and fought through in the same time a critical period of civil rights and two generations below us had no idea we did anything at all except that we're old transphobes uh, that's who we are now and the reason is of course unlike other communities is that we don't have our children who will love us and know us and who we will tell the story to this remarkable story that the paradox of the gay rights movement success is that it will never be fully understood by successive generations of of gay people uh and and the stark Reality is that, yes, we did all of it so people could live gay lives which were not political. You know, we can let, it's great that people can now just worry who they're going to marry rather than whether they're allowed to marry at all. But because we don't have our own kids, they, they really don't know or care. And when I started to tell them stories about it, they were in disbelief. And and I'm this is why I'm I'm really grateful for your book, Jamie. I I, I wonder. Uh, and again, the the memories they have are also filtered through a sort of far left lens. You will, people will not be reading Randy Shields in the future. Um, they'll be reading David France, and David France, for all his great benefits, created an image of of the AIDS experience if it was just about act up, which of course it. It wasn't at all. They were they were one small, tiny element of what was going on at the time, and in fact, people had to leave ACT UP to get any shit done on actual <laughs> accelerating drug trials. Um, that was the key split within it, which is still a sore point. That's that's what Sarah Shulman's book uh, does, and what Peter Staley will obviously doubtless disagree with. Um, but we just feel wounded i think we feel like a, a a war war we feel like the vietnam vets who no one even cared about as soon as they got home um and i and you know i think we're i'm just saying i'm not saying we demand everyone acknowledge the fight we fought and the trials we went through no but uh just some sense that something very special happened in our generation we lost a majority of it and and younger gay people should be perhaps a little more aware of that than of the emergence of gender fluid as a possible one of 54 new genders yeah it's it's really uh it's distressing nobody under 30 seems to really give a shit about what happened not that long ago or did or did even really be aware of it. You know, I'm struck by, we've been talking this for much of this conversation about how much better things are than they were, Andrew, when, when you were a kid. And while things have gotten better, people complain about more or they complain, they complain easier, I suppose. And I wonder if there's something to that, you know, adversity really does make people stronger. And your generation went through real adversity, not just in terms of, of HIV crisis and, and, and in some cases, people losing all of their friends, losing lovers, losing their entire communities, but also legally not being, not being uh, equal under the law. And Jamie and I, our generation, 
you know, we're sort of the bridge between 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 your generation and, and the, the younger people. And they have so much less adversity. And yet they fucking whine. <laughs> <laughs> I got an I got an email from the Human Rights Campaign, uh, peace be upon them, who who uh, warned me of an unprecedented assault on the rights. <laughs> unprecedented. Yeah. Unprecedented assault by the government of the United States. This is under Trump, and I I just that word unprecedented uh, being sent out by a gay rights group about essentially some changes in executive orders within the federal branch uh, or a tie or the, 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 the title nine imposition of trans rights, regardless of where you were. Uh, and these were unprecedented attacks. I, it just made me feel sick to my stomach, but I think for those people, they really believe that. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, we're just elitist uh, people with power and white Let's, let's face that we're all white. I'm Jewish, so I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Well, so is Katie, right? Yeah, well, Katie, are you Jewish? You have to be Jewish with her. I talk. identify as as Jewish. Uh, I identify as both Jew Jewish and Muslim. So, I'm both of those worlds. <laughs> Best of both worlds. Or oh, just Jewy. Yeah, I am Jewy. Jew I'm Jewish. Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> right, where, where were we? Where were we talking about before we went down the Jewish train? <laughs> oh, um, kids today. HRC. Oh yeah, yeah, unprecedented. Um, but you're right on the other point. I, I just, I'm, I'm. I should readers will know soon enough. But I'm putting out a collection of of the dish, dish greatest hits, and my own essay sort of greatest hits album for the last thirty two years. And in it is both the essay called "Gay Life, Gay Death" from 1990 and. Uh, when plagues end from '96, uh, and reading reading both of those in retrospect, because I have to read them out loud for an audiobook, which you'll also be getting, uh, it was particularly the solidarity and the sense of community we had in that generation that comes out. That there was some, like in all these tragedies, there was actually a sense of real community, and even when we were fighting, there was a sense that we were all in this together, and we because all of our lives were at risk and the lesbians too played uh, a very played a very heroic role i mean and gays and lesbians really did not get along if you look at the early years of the gay rights movement um there's this great speech by a woman named nancy tucker i think it was 1972 she gave it in a church here in uh washington dc the speech was entitled "Fuck you brothers and it was basically <laughs> an attack on you know let's face it like the misogyny among gay men. They were often treating the lesbians in the movement, uh, making them, you know, asking them to make the coffee. Um, just, you know, like most women in the 1970s and 60s were not treated well, no matter what uh, environment they were in. And, you know, gay men, just because they were gay, didn't make them necessarily more enlightened towards their dealings with women. Um, so there was a lot of tension between gay men and lesbians. And also, let's be honest, gay men and lesbians, particularly in that era, had different interests. I mean, I remember you know, interviewing a lesbian for my book who was like every meeting of the early Mattachine Society, it was all about, you know, police entrapment. And we were always wondering, why are you men? You just can't keep it in your pants. You're always like going into the public toilets and getting arrested by cops. And this doesn't really concern us as lesbians. We, you know, we care about other things. Anyway, and then in the 80s, you did see lesbians really coming in 
and and helping because you had all these men who were getting sick. Oftentimes, their lovers would abandon them because um, they were afraid or didn't or didn't want to confront it. Um, and you had lesbians in uh, these gay men. Their their families often rejected them. Their mothers often rejected them. Their sisters, and so you had lesbians basically playing those roles of mother, sister, all these roles. Um, and and I don't think we have that now. I think we lost a little bit of that. I don't know what you think, Katie. I mean, I don't, I don't. I don't Similarly, I, some of us, some of us as gay men who were dealing with our own deaths, and we volunteered. Like I was a buddy in a program. Sure, made made me go and see someone dying, and that person was a very different kind of gay than I was at the time. It exposed me to a very different culture, and it did so in a way that was that was just about helping this person get through the last nine months of his life. And it just it was it, it really did create a, a bond outside of the various gay subcultures too. We just all came together because it really was an emergency, um, and someone had to do it. Uh, but yeah, they did. That, that they that was. And also the thing about that period, we're talking about sort of uh, mid 80s to mid 90s was also actually an incredibly creative time for gay culture. Um, I mean, people, people downplay the sort of the, the electronic music, the EDM that was blasting uh, away, the house music that came in, uh, the, 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 the way that those collective dances that we had all the time together were obviously tribal in their nature um and and the energy behind that music high energy music uh you know i'm talking about new order i'm talking about pet shop boys and the communards mm -hmm. i'm talking about all the high energy disco of that era um as well as people like keith herring uh as well as a whole variety of 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 because we had so little to lose i think there was so much creativity to be had um I mean, it's awful that we've lost so many of them, but it was definitely a, a, it was, it was like, it was simultaneously terrifying and exhilarating. It's very hard to explain that mix. Um, sort of like Weimar. Uh, Weimar. Weimar. Sort of like Weimar, Germany, in a way. It, 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 it was. There were periods, I'm now going to reminisce since I'm in Provincetown, um, I remember the summer of 94, which things were really getting bad. Um, and there was a bunch of us that would come up here every summer. We started in our 20s in group houses. We slowly kind of came back and back. In those years, we would, we would lose about maybe a fifth of the guys from the year before. And then it started became a quarter. And so each summer when we had these, we set up this new dance club called The Love Shack which was up on Shank Peter Road. And we had these dances that just had this totally on the edge of the volcano or dancing on the Titanic that we knew this. We only had each other at that moment and, and we may never see each other again. A year's a long time before you come back. Uh, and that made it so much more edgy and exciting and beautiful. Um, uh, even though that was also, yeah, no, it was still, it was still, it, it, we hadn't had any of the real meds come in at that point. So I'm, I, I think about that sometimes here because all the echoes are here, of course, uh, in P-Town in particular. I'm getting all morose. Um, uh, 
thank you guys for doing this. Thank you. Really grateful. I hope I hope people just I mean, we've been talking about gay things. We we like talking about other things too, but I, I kind of wanted to give everyone a flavor of, 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 of a kind of conversation that goes on actually quite a lot in the actual gay world mm. that you will never otherwise hear, um, you will never really know about, and it is actively kept from you uh, by the by the uh, gatekeepers of queerdom, uh, and it's much more interesting and diverse than you think it is. And in fact, if it hadn't been, we wouldn't have won. Uh, so thanks a lot thank you yeah thanks Andrew. you're welcome happy pride happy pride happy pride, yes, happy pride. It was a happy great pride. great happy shame edition <laughs> gay shame gay shame pride i always always had a problem with that pride because it yeah you know i don't know about you but i've been i've been very disappointed with the lack of corporate sponsorship of gay pride. It's, yeah, it's not terrible. It's really yeah, bad. Abandoned. It's not it's there there's a hand there's a couple of corporations that just aren't really out there enough with their support. Not enough flags either. We we're going to talk about we're going to talk we're going to talk about the flag now with the the multiple var- I mean, I go to my gym. It causes epilepsy. There's like fifth there's literally they have a giant <laughs> there's a giant poster with the the 15 different pride flags and i i always thought there was one pride flag but no it's as if there's like rival uh northern irish militias and they're you know conquering city blocks and territory um i don't uh it's it's all quite confusing i have gone from hating the rainbow flag which i think is the right thing to do at a basic level because the kitschy awful awful and it, it emerged roughly in line time of the rainbow coalition which is why i thought uh, why are we being lumped in with that anyway? But now I'm like, I see it. I'm like, oh, it's like the Union Jack. I feel like, oh, it's like God. It's old school. So and my point is simply that it's, it's, did people don't seem to understand that a rainbow is a metaphor. And the metaphor was we include everybody. Wait, you're telling so me, wait, you're telling right. me it wasn't representing the red and the green and the yellow skinned people? Because that's why they added the brown and the black stripes, was because brown and black people were not represented among the purple-skinned people and the yellow-skinned people and the green-skinned people. They that's need to why. be one of those don't tread on me snakes on the next edition. Well, I, you know, I actually won't be surprised if within a year, Andrew, if if flying the old rainbow flag will be, the, will, will be the equivalent of flying a Union Jack, or apparently now, according yeah. to some people, the American flag. It'll be a sign of your white supremacy, flying the old school rainbow flag. That's it. That's how it all ratchets. Because if you don't, I see this. I see this this year in Promise Time. Um, last year, of course, everyone, everybody had a Black Lives Matter thing everywhere, all over the place. Um, and you realize people, if someone hadn't put it in their w- window, you know, it was just like Václav Havel's yes. uh, Green Press. It was, it was, it was totally workers of the world unite. Everyone did it, and you had no idea what they thought they were saying. Blah blah blah. This year, oh, that's still there actually, because um, uh, no one dare take it down. And secondly, uh, suddenly, not just the rainbow flag; it's still here, uh, but mainly the licorice all sort flag, the, the, the added, <laughs> the added licorice and the brown. Uh, the brown thing on top of it um and now but of course now we have the, the these these this big phallus coming in from the side this great <laughs> trans like a, and black and brown it's a greater than symbol 
it, it looks like an icebreaker coming through the rainbow <laughs> to take over. But then this morning, I saw the flag that was being flown by Sadiq Khan, your friend, Jamie, at, at uh, the mayor of London. Yes. Uh, and that has another penis coming from the opposite <laughs> direction at it and has a whole bunch of other colors in it that has that. So it looks like there are two giant arrows pointing at each other and slowly eating up like Pac-Man, the entire rainbow thing underneath. It is, it is aesthetically hideous. Uh, it, it, it's, but, you know, who's going to say no? The minute you say, have you experienced racism lately? And then, then if, you, if you haven't, then you have to put it up to prevent other people experiencing it, as if flying a flag is going to make people less racist. And so you don't get your windows bashed in. Yeah, that's another, that's another, although it's not quite that bad here. It's, P-Town still has this wonderful uh, libertarian streak mm. in which, which people still say things here in the performances and the drag queens that probably would get them canceled anywhere else. You um, need to educate and, them. Uh, it's so it's, and it's still, and as I said, the other resistance to the woke now is the, the sort of fogies, the people that, the, the, the class of gay men that really care about standards in the arts, in the classics, in architecture, in the, you know, the, the role that gay men used to play. Which is so ironic, though, because gay men were accused of being degenerates and of subverting all these artistic mm -hmm. categories, right? You know, if you, read, if you go back and read the, the, the reviews of Edward Albee's um, his, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, it, it was, oh, this is just some homosexual sneering at, at you know, bourgeois straight marriage. Um, and that applied to so many um, gay artists. And now, as you, as you note, the irony, you know, the irony now is that you have all these gay old fogies and they're, they're the ones defending uh, classical, you know, art and sculpture and whatnot from, uh, from the barbarians, right? Or well, there is a certain amount, and I, and, I, and you know, if you ever witness a Vatican high mass, you imagine it <laughs> in any way organized by straight men. You're it's high you're, camp. You are it's high you, camp. Yeah. You, well, I'm, I'm not going to say the sacrament of, of the communion of communion in the Vatican is high camp, sorry, but it sorry. definitely has the ritual around it has some some elements. <laughs> okay. Well, well, we've been dragging on long enough. Enough from the gays and les leses um thank you jamie thank you katie thank you for listening um we have amazing lineup for july um uh coming up for you um i'm not going to give you any leaks but also the beginning of broadcasting on the podcast my own narration of some of my uh sort of greatest hits essays over the years uh, which are included in the forthcoming collection called out on a limb uh, selected writing 1989 to 2021. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>